Well, have you ever wondered why we sing songs on a Sunday? Um, Or more precisely, why do we sing songs of praise to God? Um, Maybe you're here for the first time in church, um, or maybe you can just imagine coming into church for the first time, um, and everyone just stands up together, and they start singing, and um, week after week, people are standing up, and they're all singing, people of varying musical interests and abilities, all singing together, and there's one theme to that kind of unites everything people are singing about, and that is God. I mean, when else um, in this world, when else um, in society does that happen? People from all, music, from all different backgrounds with musical tastes and abilities um, singing together, singing one theme. Maybe the closest you'd get is um, people chanting and singing in a football stadium. But why do Christians sing? And that's a question we should all ask. If you're a Christian um, this morning or you'd call yourself a follower of Jesus, it's worth asking that. Well, why do we sing? Why do we have this singing as part of our services? Why, why should I bother opening my mouth and singing on a Sunday? And if you're maybe still looking into the claims of Christianity, maybe you're listening online just trying to find out about um, Jesus, or you've been coming along to church for a while and you want to know who is Jesus, it's also worth you asking that. Why should I join in? Why should I make these songs my own? Why should we sing praise to God? That's the question the um, writer of Psalm 113 is seeking to answer. Why should we sing to God? Psalm 113 is part of a series of psalms that um, begin or end with the phrase, praise the Lord, um, which is hallelujah in Hebrew. So they're called the the hallelujah psalms. Um, Anyway, this psalm was written to be part of the worship of ancient Israel, uh, that they'd sing as they were coming to the temple, as they were in the temple, um, praising God. And it's a psalm designed um, not, um, not just to be words for people to sing, but a psalm to, that's designed and written to move people's hearts to praise God, to motivate them to want to praise God, the God of Israel. That's the aim of our psalmist, and so that's, the aim of, uh, of, that's our aim this morning, um, that our hearts will be moved to want to praise God. And we're going to look at this psalm under three short points. First of all, praise the Lord, for he is worthy of all praise. Um, first, a brief note on singing, though. This isn't a psalm just to be um, chanted or to be read or a poem. This is a psalm to be sung. So what's so special about singing? Um, what's so special about singing? Well, in short, singing not only expresses the truth, but it also excites our emotions to feel the truth. Um, very often in the Christian life, our feelings don't align with the truth. I don't know whether you found that. You know that there's a truth that should maybe excite you. Um, you know that the Bible tells us to rejoice in the Lord, but we don't necessarily feel like it. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and the last thing you want to do is sing. The last thing you're, you feel like doing is praising God. Maybe your mind is filled with various um, things that have happened this past week. Um, with, you're, you're anxious, you're, you're in pain, um, you're grieving, and all these things can weigh on us. Why should we sing? And I know that feeling. Um, it's, so, it's so natural as well. But I think the psalmist would say to us, even if we don't feel like singing to God, try it anyway. Because singing is, is something special. It It helps focus our minds. It helps move our hearts. You know, even as we sing, for example, the words of Psalm 40 that we began with, 
um, as it describes God plucking us up from the pit, as it describes salvation in such an emotive way, um, it moves our hearts to see the beauty and to see the glory of salvation. Maybe as you sing um, Psalm 51, as David says, Oh my, uh, my God, have mercy on me for your steadfast love, I pray. That those psalms like that put into words um, our confession of sin helps us to feel and to mourn um, that weight of sin. Or other psalms put words to our pain, psalms of lament. All these times, um, singing helps to bring out um, the truths of the Bible and bring them to life. So can I encourage you to um, sing even when you don't feel like it, maybe especially when you don't feel like it. So that's why we sing, but why sing praise to God? Well, in short, we praise God because he is worthy of all praise. That's what the, the central message of this entire psalm is. Well, when we, we praise God and we praise things in, in this world, when we think that they are great, when we think something is um, worthy of praise. Um, so um, just to give some examples, when the, um, King Charles had his coronation, there were 20 million people, uh, either in person or on TV, watching this. It was a testimony that people thought this was something that was great. This was something that should be celebrated. Um, um, there was an even bigger crowd for the Queen's funeral. I don't know how Charles felt about that, 28 million. Um, but one example that particularly sticks in my head, um, you might think it's a, a strange example, but it's the Women's World Cup. While um, England, the Women's England team didn't win that World Cup, what was historic was the number of fans who were watching. There were 1.98 million people watching the World Cup in person, and over 14 million uh, in the UK watched that final on TV. And the reason it was historic was this was the first time um, that such large crowds had paid attention to women's football. And it showed that it was something that was being taken seriously, something that was worthy of praise, you might say. The crowds testified, the size of the crowds demonstrated that this was something that was worthy of praise. And that's just an example, but in a far greater way, that's the point that the writer of Psalm 113 is trying to make. He's showing us that God is worthy to be praised in the first few verses by showing us the size of the crowd. Just look down at me at the first two verses. First, we see that this is a crowd that would burst any stadium because everyone is invited. Um, in verse 1, we don't have a, a plural you in English. Maybe if we were uh, in the American South, we'd read this verse as, Y'all praise the Lord. It's a, it's a command that goes out to everyone. All of you, come and praise the Lord. It's a command not just to um, one people or one, pe or one ethnic group. Um, it's male and female. Every nation, um, no one is excluded. Everyone is invited. God isn't to, to be praised just by Christians even. This command goes out to all the earth to praise the Lord. And we see not only that, that the number of people, but um, that this isn't just a 24-hour event. God is to be praised through all time. Uh, we see that in verse 2. Let the name of the Lord be praised. Blessed, um, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist is clearly thinking bigger than just a few songs on a Sunday. He's saying that God is so glorious that his praise should be unending. All time should be filled with the praise of God. 
Third, this isn't just an event in one place. It's an event over all the earth. Um, That language of verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now that could be talking about time again, but it's more likely to be talking um, about every place where the heat of the sun touches the earth. All peoples, all nations, all languages, they are all to be praising God. The whole earth should be a, a sphere that is covered in God's praise. All people everywhere, all time. It's a big, it's a big celebration of God's praise. And that's because of who is at the center of it. Do you notice in the first, first few verses the name that is repeated? Like a chant almost. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. That's the chant that comes out through the opening verses of the Psalms. It's God's name. It's God's covenant name. In other words, it's the name he gave to his people to say, this is how you will know me. This is the, my personal name by which I have relationship with you. And it's a name that's loaded with meaning. Um, and we understand that in some ways. If I say Noah, you immediately think he built the ark. Or I say Hadrian, and you think he, he built the wall. If I say Boris, I don't know what you think. He had a party, maybe. But if you said Yahweh to an Israelite, the Lord, they would tell you all about who God is and what God has done. And that's exactly what the psalmist then goes on to do in the following verses, in verses 4 to 9. So that's our, our first point, praise the Lord because he's worthy of all praise. Second now, praise the Lord for he is highly exalted and yet stoops down low. First, let's look at how God is exalted. Do you notice all of the high up language in verses 4 to 6? The Lord is high above the heavens and his glory above the, above the nations or his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. Now, God isn't a physical being, so these verses are a metaphor. They're not talking about God's location, but his status. Ancient kings and rulers, um, you would have seen if you, um, they, they put their thrones on the top of um, lots of steps. You still see that. If you were to go into um, a palace of um, Holyrood or Westminster, the thrones are set up on steps to show the status of a ruler. Or you think of um, ancient civilizations would have put the temple of their God on top of some kind of ziggurat um, or some kind of pyramid. It should show, all to show status. And the psalmist is using similar kind of imagery to say, God, to show us God's status. He is the one who is at the top. He rules not just one nation, but he rules over all nations. He is so great that his throne is higher than the heavens. It's above the sky. God is exalted in his royal power. He is in control of all things. He has authority over all things. It's what theologians call as God being transcendent. He is the one who's at the top. He's the one who is above. And it's something that we read from the very first pages of the Bible. Without any effort, God just calls creation into existence. Right now in Carloway, we've just started a series in our Bible studies going through Genesis 1. And you just see again and again... God just speaks, and it is. God doesn't have to to form things. He could. He forms Adam from dust, but he just speaks, and he separates light from dark. And each part of creation just comes into existence by the powerful word 
of God. And the lesson from that, um, the lesson we learned with the kids um, from that Isaiah passage, was that there's no one like God. God's transcendence sets him apart from creation. He is the creator. We are all creation. God isn't like us. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the name Jim Lavelle. He was one of the first uh, three astronauts to um, orbit the moon. Uh, And he writes about how when the spacecraft was coming around um, the moon, coming around the dark side of the moon, and he first got a glimpse of the Earth through the little porthole window, he put up his thumb to the window. And he realized that in that moment, he he covered the whole Earth 240,000 miles away just with his thumb. Um, I think back then it was about 6 billion people on the earth, all 6 billion people, all the people he had ever known who had known him, all of the places he'd ever been were in that moment covered up just by his thumb. And that's a bit like God's view in verse 6. He looks far down on the heavens and the earth. Compared to God, all nations are like a drop in the bucket. God is highly exalted. There's no one as powerful. There's no one that can compare. And because of that, the psalmist says he's worthy of praise. God in himself, in his character, is worthy of praise because he is so exalted. But the psalmist doesn't end there. Because God's transcendence doesn't mean that God is distant and detached from his creation. And that's what um, people sometimes call a deist view of God. That God created the world, you know, kind of wound up the clock and just left it running. But isn't interested, isn't active in this world. But that's not the God of the Bible. God's, the fact that God is exalted, the fact that God has authority. Yes, it means he is creator and we are creatures. But it doesn't mean he's not interested. It doesn't mean he's not active. He is very present in his creation. And we see that. Um, Because the psalmist emphasizes next how he is the God who stoops down low. We see that even in the language of God looking far down on the heavens and the earth. God is the glorious creator. He's unbound by space and time. And yet he pays attention to us, to you and to me. The Bible tells us he knows every hair on our heads. We who are smaller, all of us, than an astronaut's thumb from that distance. God pays attention attention to us we see that um, in verses seven to nine he raises the poor from the dust he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes with the princes of his people he gives the barren woman a home making her the joyous mother of children praise the lord the god who looks far down is also the god who stoops down low and And gets involved with our lives. And he doesn't just pay attention to national politics, to celebrities, to figures in the government, to um, important people. He stoops down to the lowest rung of society. Look at the people who are mentioned. The poor, the needy, the childless. This is a God who notices the forgotten people of society. If you could put it in today's terms, this is the God who notices the homeless man underneath the cardboard boxes in the vacant shop door. He's the God who knows and notices the woman who is um, housebound, who maybe feels forgotten by friends and relatives. Um, growing up in Nepal, um, I knew there's a, there's a caste system there. Many countries have some kind of caste system where different um, people, different ethnicities 
are counted as more important than others. And I remember going through the street and seeing um, um, some kids who were from what would be an untouchable cast, sifting through the rubbish, picking through it, finding things to recycle. God notices them. Even though they're side by side with stray dogs um, working their way through the rubbish, God noticed those, those who are deemed untouchable by society. He sees the woman who is unable to have children. He knows that pain and that heartache that maybe people feel too people feel unable to share, that no one can understand. And to make it worse, in, in probably in this time and in many cultures still, people who can't have children are sometimes deemed as, as cursed or somehow less than other women. But God notices them. God cares about them. But God doesn't just see. Do you notice that? He also acts. And that's our third point. Praise the Lord who raises up. Verses 6 to 9 compare, can contain powerful pictures of God raising up the lowly. He raises up the poor. He makes them sit with princes. This is the stuff of Hollywood and Bollywood. You're going to think of Slumdog Millionaire and Aladdin. God is the one who raises them up from rags to riches. And we see God doing this throughout the Bible. We think of the story of Joseph, in, from being in the dungeon to being Pharaoh's right-hand man. Or David, a nobody out watching sheep, the youngest son of Jesse, the least likely person you'd expect to be king. And yet he becomes Israel's greatest king. He becomes the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. Or maybe most iconic of all, God takes his people, slaves in Egypt. And he takes them and he rescues them out brings them to himself and says, you are my chosen people, my possession. And he gives them special promises. He raises them up. And we see again in verse 9 that of God giving the barren woman a home. That's something that we see throughout the Bible. Abraham's wife, Sarah. Jacob's wife, Rebecca. Um, John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. Um, there's, there's Samuel's mother, um, Hannah. Uh, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, um, her, her husband had two wives. I don't know whether you know the story. It's, you, you already know it's a bad story at that point, but her, um, his, her, his other wife is mocking her, saying that she can't because she can't have children. What does she do? She prays to God. Um, and I should say, this isn't God, this isn't a, the way that God always promises to act, but in this situation, God raises her up and God gives her children. You might say that raising up the lowly is kind of what God does. There's not always the promise to do it in these, in these particular physical ways, but God has a track record of raising up the lowly. No wonder the psalmist says in verse 5, who is like our God? What other God? What other celebrity? What other politician? What other person in, who is important, who is so exalted and yet is so intimately involved with the nobodies of society. The rich and famous so rarely mix and that when they do, it often makes, makes the news. I think it was, what, about two years ago that Prince William um, was snapped up by all the cameras because he was selling the big issue. He only does, has to do that for about an hour and then he's on all the front pages of the newspapers all over the internet. And he's gone viral. Well, God did more than that. The exalted God became a baby 
became a man. You think that kind of thing would hit the headlines, would hit the newspapers, maybe at least appear in the local WhatsApp group, but it didn't. When God became man, he was born in a shed. He was born to a woman out of wedlock. And he went further still. As we read in Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You might say the highest of high, he became the lowest of low. And he didn't do it to promote a charity. He stooped to raise up the lowly. Uh, Not the physically poor primarily, but the spiritually poor. You and I. You see, by nature, we're all spiritually bankrupt. Um, We're talking about how we should praise the Lord. Well, we all have a debt of praise to God. We should be all worshipping God with all we are all the time. Uh, But we don't. We owe God an infinite debt of praise. But we generally live our lives often without reference to God, putting ourselves at the center, living for ourselves, worshipping um, us, us and other things, and ignoring God's commands, what the Bible calls sin. And some of you this morning might feel very aware of your spiritual poverty. You might look back in the past week and think of all the ways in which you have fallen short, all the things that you've said and done, maybe tripping up again and again in that same sin that you want to put to death, but you're struggling with. Maybe you wish you could take back those words that just bubbled out in anger. Maybe you acted selfishly, you hurt those you love in the process. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came for you. Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus came for those who recognize their spiritual poverty. The highest of highs stooped down low for those who realize they're low. For those who realize that they need the exalted God to come down to their level, who realize that they can't get up to God's level, they need him to come down to them. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's a promise for you. If you recognize your spiritual poverty this morning, you can say Christ died for me. And you can have assurance that he died in your place. There will be others, though, who aren't yet ready to admit that. You see, by nature, we're all quite quite proud. We're all reluctant to admit um, that we're really in need of God's help, that we really are as low as the Bible says we are. Maybe you think in this past week of all the good things that you have done or all the bad things that you could have done and you you didn't. And you think, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as that person or I'm not as bad as I could be I'm not utterly helpless well just to be really blunt if we weren't totally helpless Jesus wouldn't have had to die Jesus didn't just die for those people who are worse than you or who you feel like are worse than you we are all helpless Jesus had to die because we're all utterly helpless and we all need Jesus Can I urge you to be honest with yourself? When God sees you, he doesn't just see an empty bank vault. He sees a a bank vault filled with stolen praise. That's what our hearts are like. Full of stolen praise that belongs to God. There's nothing worthy in there. All of our good works are tainted by sin. They're stained. But God says that if we humble ourselves, if we repent, 
The Bible tells us that the exalted king came for us. That he paid our debt. All of that debt that's in our heart, he paid that with his blood shed on the cross. 1 John 1 verse 9 has this promise. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus not only pays us off our debt, but he also raises us up. He doesn't just wipe our slate clean. He credits to our account all the righteousness of Christ, making us children of God. God is worthy of praise in all time, in all places, by all people. Because Jesus, why? Because Jesus, the one who is exalted above all things, made himself low, stooped down to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. That is why God is worthy of praise. That is what Psalm 113 looks forward to. That ultimate exaltation and humbling of Jesus Christ in our place. God is worthy to be praised by all people for all time in all places and he will be. The Apostle John in Revelation um, has a vision of looking, he looks forward to the new creation. And that's exactly what he sees. He sees in chapter 7 a great multitude more than any could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. And what are they doing? They're praising the lamb who was slain. They're praising the one who is exalted and yet humbled himself to die for us. God is worthy to be praised. The question then is for us, the question I want to leave you with is, will we join in? Have you joined in? Will we praise him in song? But more importantly, will we praise him with our entire lives? That's what God asks of us. That's what God deserves from us. The total self-giving worship from each one of us, of all our lives, now and for eternity. That's how God will be worshipped through all time. The question is, will we join in now? Will we offer ourselves to God? In, in a moment, we're going to pray and then sing Psalm 113. And maybe we can use that as a chance to, um, to commit our heart, to remember Jesus who is exalted and made himself nothing for us and to commit ourselves to giving our hearts wholly to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you recognize that none of us can, can climb up to reach you. And so we thank you that Jesus in Jesus Christ, you have made yourself low to raise us up. Lord, please give us, um, help us to rejoice in that precious truth and worship you and praise you in response to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.